If you're a nerd, like me, you're always curious about the physics of any situation. So, obviously, when I watched Top Gun 2, I became fascinated by the aerodynamics of fighter jets. And it so happens that one of my friends used to be a fighter pilot for the Canadian Army. Immediately, I thought this would make for a cool episode, and here we are. Actually, Jason Byrne, that's his name, wanted to be a pilot from the age of three. When he was six, he went to an air show and then specifically wanted to become a fighter pilot. Yes, that is a dedicated kid, ladies and gentlemen. In his teens, Jason learned how to fly planes, which are small single-engine aircrafts. Don't worry, I didn't know what those were either. At age 22, he got a bachelor's in aeroengineering from the Royal Military College, and then, well, he'll tell you the rest in the episode. Now in his 30s, Jason owns real estate and created his own company, My Two Bros, selling temporary eyebrow tattoos. Yes, that's a thing, which, weirdly enough, is actually related to his time in the army. So mysterious. In his free time, Jason plays the guitar, travels around the world, that's actually how we met, and loves chasing adrenaline however he can. Paragliding, scuba diving, you name it. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 75, recorded November 3, 2022. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country. For any info about the podcast, learnbasedstats.com is la place to be. Show notes, becoming a corporate sponsor, supporting LBS on Patreon, unlocking Bayesian merch, everything is in there. That's learnbasedstats.com. If with all that info, a Bayesian model is still resisting you, or if you find my voice especially smooth and want me to come and teach Bayesian stats in your company, then reach out at alex.andora at pymc-labs.io or book a call with me at learnbaystats.com. Thanks a lot, folks, and best Bayesian wishes to you all. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen. Maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would i know unless i'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like i'm richard Feynman. hello my dear patients this time i want to thank rafael r yes he's very mysterious maybe he's even the one who invented the programming language we will never know thank you rafael for joining the lbs patreon in the full posterior tier I am so grateful, honestly, to all of you folks who make the effort of giving LBS the equivalent of a café latte per month. As a famous French song says, c'est peut-être un détail pour vous, mais pour moi, ça veut dire beaucoup. By the way, we just released the video of our lab's workshop about hierarchical Bayesian modeling of survey data with post-stratification. Yes, that's a mouthful, but that's very interesting. So I put the link in the show notes if you want to check it out. Now let's talk about planes, fighter jets, and the physics of Top Gun 2 with Jason Burnt. Jason Burnt? Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Ah, thanks, Alex. I'm uh, excited to be here. Yeah, me too. This is a very fun episode. This is, I think, a first of its kind because we, so full disclosure, we actually know each other personally. And so I think you're one of the first guests whom I knew before inviting on the podcast instead of the other way around. <laughs> so yeah, basically, we're friends in like general life, normal life outside of statistics. And this is a special episode today because it's going to be a bit less Bayesian focused, still very nerdy and full of physics. Don't you worry, guys. But it's just that I just saw Top Gun 2 recently. I was actually in the plane to Los Angeles. So that was cool watching Top Gun 2 in a plane. And I was just amazed at the physics of fighter jets. So I was like, wait, 
Jason must know a thing or two about that, and that could make for a nice uh, podcast episode. So, boom, here we are. So thank you for taking the time. Right on. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to having this chat. I think it could be a, an interesting one. I watched Top Gun 2 recently as well. I think I watched it when I was in Peru or something. They had an English night or something. So, And uh, it was a cool movie. No, I remember you asked me at some time, like, you've watched Top Gun 2. And I was like, oh, no, I haven't yet. And you were like, you were shocked. You were like, you haven't watched it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a good movie. And I liked it. And and I watched Top Gun 1 in my teens. I think I watched it over 15 times or something when I was a teenager because I wanted to be a fighter pilot for so long. So uh, it was like uh, yeah. Top Gun's like my probably one of my favorite movies of all time as a growing up. And then it was awesome to see the second one come out. Yeah. Damn, I wish there were a movie like that about basic statistics, you know, that they could point people to when they ask me what I do. It's like, well, I do that very sexy thing. Like, there was a movie, you know? Actually, the main <laughs> character is me. <laughs> That'd be cool. Maybe I should do that. I'll get the nerds on that project. We should, guys, we should make a movie about Bayesian statistics. Okay, let's do that. I'd watch it. I'd watch it. <laughs> so before that, basically, we're going to dig into your story. But tell us, well, basically, who you are today and what your daily activity is let's say, and so that we can contrast with actually something that you were doing today, uh, what you, that you were doing before, and that is very related to the podcast episode, the, the topic for this podcast episode. Yeah, sure. So right now, day to day in my new life, I guess you could say, because I've recently changed kind of the way I'm living my life at the age of, I guess, 30. I did that. I'm 32 now. But today I'm living that kind of the digital nomad type uh, life. So I've been traveling all over the world. And obviously, that's how you and I met in Budapest. And uh, for the last 11 months, I've been in different places in South America and Europe and kind of on a day-to-day basis and I'm deciding where I'll go and you know what I'll see or whatever. And technic- right now, I'm based out of Budapest. So it's kind of the traveling life is what I'm doing right now, enjoying kind of every day and exploring new things in the world. And then kind of on the work front, in order to obviously continue to develop myself and do things rather than that are other than just traveling around the world. I own some real estate in Canada where I do uh, passive income type uh, investing, Airbnb and long-term rentals and stuff like that, based on kind of that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, which I got into before I changed my lifestyle here. And then most recently, what I got into was uh, a business where I own a business that's uh, out of the United States called My Two Brows Temporary Eyebrow Tattoos. And, and I sell fake eyebrows or temporary eyebrow tattoos. Some people call them stickers, temporary eyebrow t- stickers, but essentially fake eyebrows for people who have no eyebrows at all for due to things like alopecia, chemotherapy, uh, trichotillomania. And uh, we sell little sheets of, of them and then people buy them all over the world and we send it to them. I wear them myself too. So I'm wearing that as well because I lost my eyebrows maybe about a decade ago from alopecia and they haven't come back yet. Although a lot of my hair is coming back now. So Yeah, and actually, well, that perfect segue to yeah we'll put links to your to your business like to the eyebrows business that you have because i love also the the you know the origin story of that company because it's also related to basically what you did before and like you lost your hair and eyebrows because of well basically all the stress you had being a, a, a fighter pilot and uh, what i love is like well you built a company in the end uh, um Based on that, pretty awful experience to leave, probably. And but based on that, you you managed to build a company. So I, I just love that origin story. You know? Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, what happened is when I was a kid, I had like a few spots of hair that left or whatever fell out or whatever. But then it didn't really hit until I was a fighter in the military college. I went to the military college in Canada for four years and did an aeronautical engineering degree there. And uh, and then they coupled it with all kinds of military stuff where we had to wake up at like six in the morning, do push-ups and some crazy music they'd wake us up to. Like, I don't know if you know the show, the song Bodies, let the bodies hit the floor. I remember my first morning there, I woke up to them blasting that on loud PA speakers at six in the morning and hitting our doors, get up. And we had to be outside by the end of that song, ready for push-ups and stuff. So when I was in the military college doing the engineering degree there, I just, I ended up getting so stressed. I lost my hair. It started to come back at the start of flight training. But then once I got into the fighter jets and stuff like that and fell out again, cause it's just pretty stressful. And, and the brows were gone ever since the, the first spot there or whatever. So yeah, I can guess that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, actually let's dig into that because like, as you were saying, this is your second career now. So let's talk about the first one. How did you become a fighter pilot and why? Yeah, that's a good question, right? So 
and it goes for a lot of fighter pilots. I mean, you ask most fighter pilots this question and they'll most probably over 90% of them are going to tell you that they always wanted to do that. And that's the case for me as well. So it was a passion, like from the age of three, before I could even speak, I used to point at airplanes in the sky to my parents, but airplane, airplane. And then at the age of six or something, my dad, cause I was clearly interested in airplanes. I mean, I didn't know different types of planes or whatever, but at that time he paid some pilot, you know, to take me up in a small Cessna or something for my birthday, my sixth birthday. And I was really excited about it. And from the age of about six onward, I started playing these little flight simulator games on computers back on those old, you know, those old MS-DOS computers. We had something called Chuck Yeager's Advanced Flight Trainer, just a horrible graphics, obviously. It was a 1995 operating system. And I like found it fun to fly planes on that with a little joystick and stuff. And then I started playing things like Flight Simulator 98, Flight Simulator 2000, stuff like that. And I went to an air show when I was eight. It's called the Air Show 98, where I'm from in Canada, in Victoria, Canada, BC. And they, the F-18, they had F-18 Hornets there, the demo jet, you know, because one fighter pilot a year does demos all around Canada, United States and stuff. I was pretty impressed, obviously, with that jet flying upside down and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, loud, faster than the speed of sound points and, you know, loops and whatever. So that caught my attention. And at that point, I was kind of like, yeah, you know, I, w- I want to fly that. Like, I don't just want to be a pilot. I want to be a fighter pilot. And so knowing that, then I was like, okay, how can I do this? And, you know, the odds to become one are somewhat slim. I didn't know at the time, but there's only about 150-ish fighter pilots in Canada, you know, this population of almost 40 million people. So it's not that many people, you know, I guess you could say it's an exclusive kind of crowd to get into, obviously, and it takes quite a bit of uh, discipline to get there. So how did I get into it? Well, I end up going into a program it was all sequentially i knew what my end goal was and it's to fly fighter jets and but there are all these goals that you know along the way and i'm writing a book about it but but pretty much uh like uh in my teen years the goal was to become a glider pilot and a little small airplane pilot and it's called a private pilot and i learned to do that via scholarships and a program called air cadets which is like where it's like a paramilitary organization for teenagers and it's it's kind of the goal of getting people interested in the military. I was already interested in being a fighter pilot anyways, and so it made sense for me to go through that program. Finished that program, I ended up becoming a glider pilot or sailplane. I flew those. I still fly them sometimes for fun. And then small airplanes, you know, with engines, you know, like Cessnas, stuff like that. And then I joined the military at 18. And the, the point was, the reason why, so I had to go to, the, I went to the military university or military college. It's called Royal Military College of Canada. And the reason why is because to be a pilot in the military in Canada, in most places, you need to be an officer. And to be an officer, you have to have a degree. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but I knew that I really liked airplanes. I didn't even know what an engineer was, straight up. But I just thought aerospace or aeronautical engineering sounds like, oh, airplanes, you know. So I chose that degree, and, and it turned out to be quite a difficult one, obviously, you know, with the types of stuff we did. And Certainly, I could have done something easier because it was just the requirement to be an officer, a degree. I could have done any degree. I could have done an English degree or something. But anyway, I did this degree, and I mean, I would say it's helped me in ways. And It was certainly difficult to get through, but I got through that, graduated, and then went into flight training stuff, and then uh, provided I didn't, uh, I did well enough in the first few phases of flight training, then I the, the idea was I would get selected to be a fighter pilot if I or to be able to try to be a fighter pilot. And then I managed to get selected for that. And beyond that point, it was just don't screw up essentially two flights in a row. Because if you screw up two flights in a row, and there's quite often no mercy, and you'd be kicked out and uh, put into flying another aircraft or something. And that is if you're lucky enough to even fly another aircraft. So I achieved that at 27. So I joined the military at 18, achieved fighter pilot status at 27 years old. And then ironically, I ended up leaving the military about 30 years old. So I flew operationally on F-18 Hornets for about three and a half years. Then my contract was up because a seven-year contract from when you first become a pilot in the military, not a fighter pilot. And I got my wings, it's called, you know, seven years before I quit the military, became a fighter pilot. And then, uh, yeah, did that for a couple of years. And I decided, okay, well, I've done it. So what else can I do in life now? Yeah. And so... Actually, I'm curious because it's like, so it seems like it's a very long training. And once you have your wings, as you say, like for how long usually people keep flying? Because it seems to be also a very physical endeavor. So I, I'm wondering, like, is it something like, you know, uh, professional sports, professional athletes where 
coming at a certain age, it starts becoming very difficult physically? Or can people fly fighter jets until they are, I don't know, 50, 60, until they retire? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, general, I don't think you'll see guys flying jets into their 60s for a couple of reasons. One would be physical because it is a very physical task to do. I mean, I remember when I first started flying these and pulling G and stuff like that, I was physically dead at like at the end of the day, so tired and, you know, sleep really well. So it is a very physical job in that cockpit. And you're moving all over the place, looking left, right behind you while under, you know, up to seven and a half G, you know, all over the cockpit, just moving your head and, and fighting accelerated forces and stuff like that. So yeah, it's tiring. That being said, there are guys, Canada, who'll fly these into their probably into their 40s or so but generally at that point the way it works is kind of is like you're also like in the military there's also progression of rank and responsibility and different things too so generally the guys unless you're what we call the career captain which there are like some guys will just be captains forever until they retire and they'll just fly and maybe they'll end up they'll end up on some ground tour in between flying tours but they could fly and i'm probably into their at least maybe 50 years old or something. But for most guys, what happens is that's kind of like a mid twenties to like mid thirties guys will really be uh, flying a lot. And then they'll end up in more administrative positions or, you know, higher rank stuff or whatever, where they kind of fly a little less and maybe they'll end up in more leadership positions in the air force, all the way going up to like commanders of, of bases or, or even of the air force. I mean, one of the the last commanders of Kane or, or military was, General Lawson, he was a fighter pilot, but he wasn't flying fighter jets at that time in his life at all, you know, because he was commanding the, the military or whatever. So, yeah, uh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is super physical, right? <laughs> uh, actually, like you already mentioned the, the G's you're taking. So, I mean, they make a big deal out of that in, in the Top Gun movie. So, like, they take 9G at some point the mission so yeah by the way guys uh, lots of spoilers so if you haven't seen the movie <laughs> but want to and don't want to be spoiled stop the episode right now <laughs> but yes basically in the mission they take up to nine g's so like is that something that you actually did that's actually doable that some missions actually happen doing that or is that kind of unrealistic here but also in general, what's your experience was like taking so many G's on, on you? Sure. I mean, yeah. So they, I think, yeah, it was nine G or something. And from what I remember, they, they had, they were required to overstress the aircraft to do that in the movie. So they hit something called the paddle switch, which gives an override, you know, essentially the, the Hornet and most fly by computer kind of systems or whatever in jets will automatically limit their G based or their centripetal acceleration or whatever you want to call it, or G force or whatever they'll limit themselves to a certain number of G's or whatever to avoid the pilot breaking the aircraft, essentially. But there's in the movie, they override, they press the override. And the reason they did that, I think, in the movie, if I remember correctly, is because based on the speed they were going and the, the amount they needed to pull up, they had to essentially pull that much G in order to not hit the mountain or something like that. Is that certainly, uh, that's a real world consideration, I guess, if you're at a certain speed and certain altitude and you have to avoid a certain piece of terrain. I mean, it's certainly, I mean, that would be, that's uh, quite the intense, it's certainly quite an intense thing to consider. I mean, literally, if you need to do a mission where you need to overstress your aircraft in order to do it, I mean, it's, but they make a good point of saying that in the movie too. It's like, yeah, this isn't normal, you know? Generally what Hornets and people are doing in air combat are medium level tactics where you're quite often up uh, well above the earth and doing things up there where you're not really in risk of hitting the, the ground. And in such a time, you I don't think you'd be pressed to ever really need to hit 9G or anything like that. I've experienced up to 9G in a centrifuge. So they in Toronto and Canada, they train the fighter pilots or would-be fighter pilots or people that are trying to become fighter pilots anyways to see if we can handle those accelerative forces, the G-force. And they put us up to 9, I think it was 9G for... I have some videos of it, actually. They took videos of it for, I think it was 15 seconds or something. But with the 9G, we were wearing what they call G pants. And so they squeeze, these pants squeeze your legs with air. You ever get your arm? Yeah. You test your blood pressure. It's like that, but like way more. And it'll squeeze all the way from the bottom of your legs all the way up to your belly. And so that the blood kind of, it tries to keep the blood in your head. So we did 9G in that. And then we did, I think, seven or seven and a half on the centrifuge with no pants or something like that. In the jet itself, I pulled up to, you know, just over 7G or something like that. So um, while I'm flying. Yeah, yeah. And to be clear, it's with no pants, with no G pants, right? You still have the <laughs> pants in the centrifuge, right? <laughs> Although I'm picturing some very interesting stuff here. 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, I mean, how do you even like? Can you even train for that, or it's just like you go regularly in the centrifuge, or is just something that your body can just take it when it's pretty young, and that's all. Basically, you cannot. Or are there people who actually can take G-force way better than others? Is that just genetic difference, or can you like? train for it yeah you certainly can train for it so in fact when you go on the centrifuge course it's considered a training course so they teach you how to do it so you don't just kind of sit there even with pants or no pants you don't just kind of just subject yourself to the g what you do is there's a certain way to actually um contract your muscles and breathe to withstand g to the highest level that essentially your body can and so the way it works is you the well the intent is this so let's say that you have like i don't know let's say you have 10 pounds of blood in your head or something And let's say that you pull 7G. So it essentially acts as if it's 70 pounds of blood in your head, let's say. And so that 70 pounds of blood in your head is going to want to leave your head much more than maybe 10 pounds, whatever. So the G-force is trying to pull the blood out of your head. And the reason for it trying to leave your head is based on the way you're sitting. I suppose if you were sitting upside down, then it would actually be have the opposite effect. But Anyway, then you, you wouldn't want blood being pushed into your head either because your eyes would explode. So nobody could do like negative 7G, that's for sure. Positive G is easier to handle. So anyway, so with positive G acting down your spine, essentially, it's trying to leave your head, the blood. So how do you stop it from leaving your head or make it harder for the blood to leave your head? Well, there's ways that they can train you to do that. So you can flex. Essentially, what you do is you flex your muscles sequentially all the way from your lower calves, up your thighs, your abs, And then all the way into your neck and you breathe in such a way like, and you're really breathing and it pushes the blood up into your head. And if I do it like for you right now, you could see, I don't know if you want to see it, but you could see my head turn actually red, like a tomato, if, you know, and right now it puts a lot of blood in the head, but if you're under G, then it just keeps less of your blood from leaving your head essentially. And But I mean, only up to a certain point. Yeah. Because if you lose all the blood from your head or a lot a certain amount of it, You'll lose consciousness and you'll lose consciousness and you won't regain consciousness for over 30 seconds at least, which is enough time for you to smack, hit the ground. I mean, people have died for that. And then if you lose just before that, if you get tunnel vision and it goes black, you're very close to losing consciousness. And that's what they call the difference between a blackout and a G-lock or G-induced loss of consciousness. And the G-lock will kill you because you'll crash. And there's no other people yeah. usually in fighter jets other than the pilots. Some have navigators. F-18 Super Hornets have guys in the back, but F-18 Legacy Hornets, F-35s, F-16s, most don't have any. It's just one pilot and nobody else on the plane. So if you lose consciousness, you're dead. Unless you have one of those. I mean, some F-16s in the States have like uh, systems that'll actually auto-level the wings and pull out of a dive if the pilot goes unconscious, but certainly not all aircraft. I'd say probably the minority of aircraft have that. Yeah, yeah. It's really a big deal. Right? Like if you cannot take that, it's a huge danger to yourself. So Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the pants help too, obviously. So Yeah, yeah. I think they make a good job in the movie here of like conveying that and even the tunnel vision has quite a good visualization in the movie. So that that's quite cool. And actually I'm wondering how theoretical, you know, was your training because I mean you did a bachelor's in aerospace engineering, but Do you actually need that to fly the planes you, you were flying? Like, and you were flying the F-18, which is actually the one that they are flying in Top Gun, that's, so that, that's quite fun. But yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, basically here I'm like curious about the split, you know, between theory and practice, because, well, because, well, like you're flying that stuff at what, like 2,000 kilometers per hour? So like, I'm wondering how much of like thinking you can even do at that speed. Yeah, yeah. So that's a good point. I mean, realistically for flying, um, it can help to have like an engineering background for sure. I would say it's certainly not required though. I mean, as an operator of a fighter jet, I mean, what do you, by the time you get to the jets and you're flying on these jets, like I think the engineering can help you more in, in my kind of in the primary levels of flying stuff like, um, or at least to a point that it actually, you can notice it, you know, maybe when you're first learning to fly airplanes, elementary flying, you know, okay, I get this about lift and drag and, and uh, the different forces that act on a plane and, and how this all works. Um, because you're essentially learning to fly. I mean, by the time you get to flying something like the Hornet, which is, or any fighter jet for that matter, flying is kind of, is taken for granted at that point, And you're not really thinking about the flying anymore. So Like when I learned to fly the Hornet, I took it solo. The third time I ever was in a Hornet cockpit, I was alone. So nobody was with me. That was my third flight. And so, and it was just because we already knew how to fly. We flew something called the T6 Texan or the CT156 Harvard before that. 
aerobatic trainer, CT-155 Hawk, which is like what the British Red Arrows fly. Those were where we learned how to fly like aerobatics and stuff. And, and even before that, more elementary flying. But by the time we're flying the Hornet, I mean, it's not that hard of a plane to fly in terms of flying itself. I mean, it is in that you go fast and time is always kind of your enemy when you're flying that because of how fast you're going. It's like every second counts. But it was the tactics that were really the challenging part, the missiles, shooting the missiles, the bombs, the guns, stuff like that. And I wouldn't say those things were necessarily at all. I don't think engineering necessarily helped so much for that. Maybe in terms of like how difficult it was and how difficult it was to be learning to fly the Hornets and maybe how to study things or whatever. But certainly I flew with people who did other degrees, history degrees, English degrees, stuff like that. And they didn't have any problems at all. So Yeah, that's quite amazing, right? I mean, this is a, an awesome testimony to what homo sapiens can do by collaborating and being like everyone extremely specialized in something because the engineers who built those planes cannot fly them but on the other end you cannot engineer that kind of plane if you're not and don't have like a, a strong understanding of the of physics and engineering and so it's just all those collaborations of extremely specialized people that makes all that whole endeavor possible it's pretty incredible like whereas if you had to do everything on your own, well, we would probably just still be using very rudimentary airplanes. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's an interesting thought for sure. I guess that means like something that they always say in the, in the movie, you know, it's like it's the very American stuff. It's like, you know, don't think, just fly. And so I guess from what you're saying, it's basically true, right? It's just like, I mean, in the sense that at that point, it's just you should be able to fly automatically in a way. That's what you were saying. Oh, yeah. And fight automatically too. Fly and fight. I mean, because fighting is the big part in these things. It's essentially yeah. what we said is it's like we strapped a jet to our back. That's what we said. So you strap into the jet. It's like it's an extension of you essentially. Like if you want to go over there, you'll go over there or there, down, up, down, whatever. It's like, and with such thrust behind you and, and something like that with those, those engines, the afterburners, I mean, you can go where you want, do what you want. The thing is, okay. So there's a time to think and there's a time to do in this that job. And the time to think through all the possible scenarios and what you would do or whatever is on the ground at what we call zero knots and one G. Okay, we're at one gravity right now. We're just chilling out. I'm on a couch right now and zero knots. I'm not moving, you know. So that's when you do your thinking and you can go through. We used to, I used to chair fly. I would sit, close my eyes on these types of training before the flights. Think about all kinds of scenarios that could happen, go wrong, go right. You know, what do I do here? What do I do there? What do I do if this happens? Da, 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 da. And then once you plan your flight for whatever scenario it is, whatever war scenario, you go through all kinds of contingencies. So ideally, and you also have prescribed tactics that are based on certain situations, you know, that are all very well thought out ahead of time by people that are in the, you know, essentially the top tiers of fighter pilots, uh, well, top gun instructors, they call them fighter weapons instructors. Okay. That's essentially the people who went through, well, it is the people who went through the top gun course. Because that course is a real thing in America and, and Canadians go through it as well. And so those guys will prescribe tactics that they think out in all kinds of ways ahead of time and, and discussions and stuff will go on. So the thought, the thinking, the thought, all that, that's all done ahead of time. And so it's true. I mean, you're not thinking, you shouldn't be thinking, what should I do once you're up there? You should already have a game plan of what you'll do and if including contingencies. And you should just be effectively react. Um, well, proactive as much as possible and ideally proactive as much as possible and if uh, required reactive obviously as well but instinctually to a point because like you said you're going you're traveling so fast up to generally between the 0.7 0.8 and uh, 1.1 mach range 1.2 mach so and mach being the speed of sound so in that transonic region of, of speed or whatever which is somewhat i mean depends on your altitude what the speed of sound actually is but you're somewhere in that 1000 kilometer ish per hour region of speed so you don't really have too much time to think you just have to act i agree with that yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's super interesting raises so many questions but basically like something i was there is an awesome scene in the movie where basically they well they escape with an f-14 which is apparently way older than the f-18s and then they have these, like the enemy has what they called fifth generation fighter jet. So, and at some point that fifth generation jet basically like goes, instead of being horizontal to the ground, then starts being vertical. And so because of the air, it goes back and then 
it becomes horizontal again to the ground. And that the whole point of that maneuver was because before it was in front of the F-14 and be, by doing that maneuver, then it ends up being behind it and then it has the upper end. And like that, that scene is, is really amazing in the movie, but the guys in the F-14 are really super surprised that the guy was able to do that. So in a way, uh, it's a way for me to ask like how realistic is Top Gun 2 in a way? And I, this kind of maneuver, is it something that actually is possible? And if it is, is it only with that kind, a uh, new kind of airplane, or actually they, the, the guys in the F-14 shouldn't be that surprised? Yeah, that's a good question for sure. I mean, overall, um, big picture, is Top Gun 2 realistic? I was actually quite surprised. Like, I think there's a lot of really good things in there that certainly encompass fighter pilot culture the way it is. I mean, right down to even like the personalities of some of the, the dynamics between the pilots and the navigator or the air weapon system operator guy and and the dynamics between the men and the woman and, and stuff like that. I mean, these are well done. I mean, and they were talking about realistic things and issues between fifth gen and fourth gen fighters in terms of avionics and uh, different um, sensor systems and things like that. So it seemed like they did a good job. I mean, certainly uh, a lot of the, this bombing run they needed to do was quite intense, maybe. Um, but like the weapons they were using and things they were talking about were really on point. I think at one point they like flew under a bridge or something, which I thought was a little crazy. But I guess if you're up against a surface-to-air missile, that is going to shoot you down if you're too high. I can see the uh, what they're getting at there. So I think generally uh, it's fairly well done in terms of realism, although it was a very, very intense mission set that they were, they were doing. And the accuracy that they were looking to achieve was uh, pretty intense as well with that bomb, from what I remember. You know, with, a, I would say, a very low probability of success. They say that in the movie, though, too. So, okay, I'll give them credit. They say it's a low probability of success, but they don't really have any other option from what I understand in the movie. So cool. Yeah. Now, I mean, you look at that F-14 versus uh, that fifth gen um, enemy jet. From what I remember in there, I mean, I remember something similar in Top Gun 2, Top Gun 1 as well, where Maverick goes, you know, I'm going to hit the brakes and you'll fly right by. And Goose in the bag is like, you're going to do what? Or whatever, you know. Essentially... I mean, it's a case of kind of what you're talking about with this fifth gen jet. It sounds like, from what I remember in the scene, the, the fifth gen jet kind of, it's what do you call a downrange travel stop? I mean, Hornets can do this. Uh, lots of fighter jets can do it better or worse than others, depending on if they're considered like a quote unquote slow speed fighter or not. Like, for example, if F 16 uh, Falcon or more well known as a Viper, um, generally wouldn't be so good at something like this, whereas an F 18 Hornet is quite good at it. And there's different enemy aircraft that can be better. I think the way they, they frame this in the movie is, is as if because it's a fifth gen that it can maybe do a better maneuver, downrange travel stop. Maybe, maybe not. But generally, fifth gens are kind of the whole fifth gen argument is more so of an avionics one, I would say, than, you know, you can create like an aircraft that can do certain types of maneuvers where it downrange, you know, it slows down really quickly, like the F-18 or, or maybe this one that they're surprised by. And maybe they're surprised because it does a better job than what they're used to with the F-18, for example, that they normally fly. But I wouldn't say it's necessarily based on the fact that it's a fifth gen so much as maybe a newer gen that they or jet that they haven't uh, haven't really seen so much of, if that makes sense. So. Yeah, yeah, I see. And uh, it certainly doesn't stop in air. It doesn't stop midair. But what it appears to stop yeah. relative to the F-14. Because the F-14 is an intercepting, it's an interceptor aircraft. So they were never made, they certainly weren't made for any you know, kind of slow speed fighting or anything like that. So an F-18 should be able to effectively do something you know, similar against an F-14 maybe as well, you could say, if that makes sense. Yeah, I see, I see. And so these fifth generation fighters, like, is that the new generation of fighter jets that we have right now? And like, what's the main difference with the ones that you flew, for instance, the F-18? Yeah, the F-18 is what they call a fourth generation fighter. Then you have like 4.5 gen, which is like a F-18 Super Hornet type thing. Uh, so, you know, Super Hornets are a little bit newer. I mean, the fifth gen fighters, F-18s, you know, they're back from the 80s, kind of. Fourth gen, they're like early 2000s, 4.5 gen. I mean, the fifth gen are kind of, they're the new ones, right? So... They're the ones coming out now. They're the F-35 Lightning. Okay, that's the big... The F-22 Raptor, and then a different various ones that they have in um, other nations, I guess, that are not really allied, allied nations. But what's the big difference between these? Well, realistically, I wouldn't say that the huge differences are in terms of aerodynamics or anything, and that's why I, I was kind of getting at earlier in terms of the downrange travel stop, but more so in terms of stealth, being able to be stealth, in other words, less detectable by radar, 
And then in terms of avionics, so uh, how good the radars are, the sensory systems, these types of things, um, customization to the pilot, these types of things for, for the jets, maybe more so. So they're more so of an avionics increase in capability, which is huge, by the way. Don't underestimate that at all. That's, that's a huge capability increase because you can only increase aerodynamics so much and then avionics is going to be a huge player. So Yeah. Yeah, okay. So um, I understand. It actually gets to something I wanted to talk about also is like, technology and human factor, uh, because it's actually a theme in Top Gun 2. And I think here it's a bit of a caricature piece, like Ed Harris character, for instance, is like this big, I think, admiral. And he's like, oh yeah, like fighter jets, fighter pilots are completely obsolete. We're going to replace you all by automated drones and so on, you know, which is like, I mean, I'm working technology and I am like, yeah, that sounds a bit, you know, over the top, but I guess it, it serves as, you know, like dramatic effect in the movie, but more seriously, yeah, I'm like curious about what you think, you know, what does the, the future of that job look like to you in a way, and in particular in relation to automation and automated solutions, which is, I think, what you, you called avionics in the lingo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, automated solution. Yeah, so like, it's an interesting question. It's kind of up for debate, obviously. And the hard part, I think, here is um, okay. Well, I think at like um, fighting at distance type things, I think uh, in terms of automation, could end up taking over a lot. I mean, you know, like the things that you're doing at um, at distance. You know, when you're fighting each other long ways away from each other, whatever, launching missiles far away, and, and that kind of stuff. The maneuvers aren't really that are required aren't necessarily, you know, maybe uh, not quite as dynamic as if you're in a dogfight, you know, one-on-one with somebody pulling 7.5G, whatever kind of fight, a dogfight of some sort, right? And uh, because you have so much distance between you and you can kind of take more time or whatever, what do you mean to do? So I think, and in terms of flying itself, I mean, certainly um, we're there with lots of autopilot stuff. I mean, if you're flying from A to B, you can turn on autopilot right down to almost landing an aircraft. I mean, in some aircraft, you can land them. It's just a matter of how much uh, avionics you have on board. So airplanes do land themselves as well. And you can go, you know, land them right down to zero visibility and stuff like that. So I think the automation stuff is coming and there's certainly aspects of flying fighter jets that can be replaced. I think the biggest limiting factor with this is going to be sensors, maybe, because... I mean, a long time ago, they said that maybe nobody would ever be able to translate languages except for a human. And and now I guess like, you know, you can just use your Google Translate or whatever when you're in South America or wherever, Hungary, like I use sometimes. But, uh, (laughs) you know, but uh, so maybe something's possible. But from what it seems like right now to me, it's like, how can you create so many sensors on an aircraft to be able to effectively give a 360 degree coverage up to how far away behind it, in front of it, whatever, and then be able to use those sensors based on angles between the aircraft and, and whether or not it looks like an aircraft is going to shoot guns at you or a missile or whatever, and be able to make the aircraft automatically uh, react. It seems like that might be a point at which it's it'd be very difficult to be able to get automation where because it's almost like at some point it's like it requires the judgment of a pilot to look behind him if he's getting shot at or something and be like, okay, you know, this looks like time to do a certain maneuver or whatever based on what's presented to you with the airplane behind you. Maybe it would be easier if you're the one taking the shots, I guess you could say, but then there's different things about rules of engagement and whether or not you legally should be shooting and stuff like that as well. So it's a tricky one. Man, this is awesome. Because like, so basically, you know, I don't think you know, but this whole, what we often say in the Bayesian stats framework is that it's actually a framework of statistics that emphasizes the human factor. And so like actually trying to come up with statistical models that do the hard part of computing where humans are bad at, but also combining that with human domain knowledge, which like is prior knowledge or prior expertise in that field. And it's like actually a framework where you try to automate as much as possible, but you also try to keep the human trade-off or arbitrage, as you were saying, like you need the eye of a pilot, where sometimes you do need the eye of a domain expert or the eye of a, the eye of a modeler to make sure that the model is giving you right answers, right? And answers that make sense because it can make sense to the computer, but you actually know the world and live in it. And so you can actually see if like the 
causal relationship, for instance, makes sense in, in one direction and not another. And the computer cannot really do that for now, at least. But so it's interesting because there is also this big debate in the stats community where you have like, I would say the full AI, you know, part where it was like, oh, well, let's just look at correlations everywhere and let just let the computer do everything. And we on our side are much more like, well, no, let's use the computer in a way more targeted way where it's extremely good at, but still keep us in the loop because sometimes and often the model is going to say stupid stuff. And so we need to be there to guide it and make sure that it's actually doing something that we want to do and answering the questions that we want it to answer. So it's funny because like, it's really parallel with what you just said. Yeah, that's true, for sure. And there's an argument to be made that you could end up with maybe like 90% of what fighter pilots do is almost being like onboard consent switches. You know, like you could say that yeah. you effectively could end up having a, a dude in a cockpit in the event of getting into a situation where it is required to have a feedback loop from a human rather than from a computer, a sensor or something. But for maybe most of those situations where you don't, end up in such a dynamic situation like a dogfight, maybe the fighter pilot is quite there as a systems monitor or something and effectively a consent switch. I think that could be quite possible as well. I mean, probably the more near future, like maybe, you know, like if we're talking about like say hundred years from now, maybe that would be certainly something that's much more likely to happen sooner. I'm not sure it would happen way longer, but I could see something like that maybe. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, if you're a bit, um, like if you're dreaming a bit, like when you were flying these planes, like the F-18, was there like a particular, you know, in technical innovation where if you had no limit, you know, like you were like, oh man, that'd be so good, so cool if we had that stuff, it would help us so often? Yeah, I mean that, because it was a fourth gen jet, generally what we're looking at is it was... There were innovations that we really wanted, but that exist. So we were looking at essentially wishing that we were flying fifth gen jets to make the pilot workload a lot easier in turn. Because there's a lot of moving pieces going on with some of the stuff that we had to do flying that Hornet. I mean, it was an old jet and things were kind of Frankenstein into it as time developed. So they would add pieces here and there and systems or whatever from the 80s until obviously now, obviously, computer systems are much more developed from 1980 until 2020. And so they're still adding things and and they're doing it in weird ways sometimes that aren't very intuitive for the pilot and stuff like that. So there's a lot of things where like, oh, like why did they do this kind of engineering? Why did they add it that way or that? So probably systems that would give the pilot more information readily for targeting and, and stuff like that would have made it a lot easier so that you can free up your brain to do other tasks that are more so to do with maneuvering the jet because you're always against time. And if you're not moving your jet properly at a certain time, I mean, because you're closing on another jet, if you're going head to head, you know, at 2000 kilometers an hour or something, obviously uh, you're running out of time quickly to do things before it could turn into uh, obviously a much more, you could say like dangerous scenario in war, like where you could get shut down easier and stuff like that. Or, or even, even more dangerous, I guess you could say in training if, you know, because if, if you're converging in the sky, it's okay. We do that all the time, but then you have to be more aware of where you are and make sure you're not going to hit them either vertically or horizontally, stuff like that. Yeah, I see. Yeah. And is there one, like, before, I'd like to dive a bit more into the personal side of things, but uh, before that, I'm, I'm wondering, like, if we de-zoom a bit, would you say there is one biggest enemy when you're flying that type of, that type of engine? You talked about time, you talked about like, you know, reaction time and so on. Like, what is there like one big thing that's mainly is your enemy in that kind of business? Yeah, it is time. Time is your biggest enemy when you're doing this because everything is so dependent on it. Generally, especially when you're coordinating with other aircraft and dropping bombs and here and there, we need to be in and out by this time. If you screw with time, when you're behind enemy lines, then you're going to end up, you know, if you're late for anything. So you can't be too early, too late. You're too early to drop a bomb. You could drop it on the wrong people because people move, cars move, stuff on the ground. If you're too late to drop a bomb, same thing. You could also have conflicts with other bombs that are dropping from other aircraft. If you're too late for whatever reason, then you could have other miss aircraft that were able to scramble and launch and come intercept you and try to shoot you down while you're over enemy territory. If you're too late to turn around and go back home, other planes could try to shoot you down and stuff like that. So, and like I said, you're always closing. You're closing on everything that's on the ground at about a thousand kilometers an hour, and any aircraft 
or airborne threat that's coming to try to shoot you down, you're closing on each other at about 2,000 kilometers an hour because you're going head to head. So distance gets eaten up very quickly. And all of a sudden, you know, you can find yourself in a situation where you're like, how did I already end up merging with this aircraft? And now we're in a dogfight, you know, and that's, again, now you're in a big problem of time because as you wrap up in this fight and try to shoot this plane down or he shoots you down, you got other planes coming to support him and stuff like that. And you're behind enemy lines. So time is definitely always the biggest enemy with this, uh, in my experience anyways. Okay, I see. Okay, let's take it to the personal side of things because I'm also interested like how it is to be a fighter pilot. So basically because like our brain is extremely adaptable, right? It has this amazing ability to just adapt to its environment all the time. And so in the end, I'm wondering if this constant stream of adrenaline can in the end still become boring because, well, you're doing that every day. So yeah, to us, it's super weird and that would be extremely unsettling at first. But then I'm wondering, like, does it get you like kind of boring in routine or is it like really always something that's almost completely new? Yeah, that's a good question for sure. And I found this surprising actually when I was doing it. So like, I'm just thinking like when I was on flight training, it was always interesting when you started flying a new plane. It was fun when I started flying something called the Grobe 120, which is a little piston powered plane. It was fun when I started flying something called the Harvard or the T6 Texan, the CT-155 Hawk, because the first jet I flew. And these things were always quite interesting, you could say, during the training phase when you were learning new aircraft and being exposed to more and more type of tactical flying, learning to do this stuff alone. These, you know, going from being, you know, with an instructor in the back to doing it alone, these types of things. So that stuff was always really exciting during the initial training phases. What was interesting is once I became a fighter pilot, I was still always training, but we were training kind of relatively the same mission sets, just how to do them as a leader instead of a follower or maybe a leader of more airplanes or, or whatever. But the actual tactics and stuff got to be somewhat the same and repetitive and same with the flying itself. And I guess it makes sense because if you don't want to have to think in the air, like we talked about, then you probably want to repeat these things hundreds of times. So you have an instinct on what to do. So for that reason, it did get repetitive and it lost, it certainly lost the adrenaline. I mean, unless you're flying really low at like maybe a couple hundred feet over the ground, that could be pretty intense uh, generally because you're always like a split quarter second away from hitting the ground and dying. So you got to keep your wits about you. That always gave me adrenaline. I remember when I first started flying the, <laughs> planet, uh, the first time I took off, I put it in afterburner, right? Which is over hundred percent of its thrust, you know, it's, and it pushed me, you know, I put it in uh, put that afterburner in, and it kind of kicked me back in my seat while I'm, I'm controlling this plane, going down the runway, feeling like I'm in a rocket ship and take off in this thing. And I go airborne through 200 knots. I'm already at 400 kilometers an hour going, uh, climbing out, still accelerating gears up. By the time the landing gear goes up, I'm over 600 kilometers an hour, seven, eight, 900 kilometers an hour. It's like, very quick acceleration and you know and i remember like the first time i just standed the hornet on end and went vertical right through right unrestricted climb up through twenty thousand feet and just see this the earth get small below you and, and flip upside down and pull over you know these were cool experiences that i've had and uh you know if you really think about it when you're doing it it's exciting but on the day-to-day -day, you dig i did get used to it and quite often i just end up in the cockpit stressed thinking about what the tactics were on this mission for this training mission and Sometimes even being like swearing in the cockpit to myself after this, this, like, oh, Jesus, like, uh, didn't, can't believe I didn't do this right. It became very much, um, obviously, a job, you could say, which is what it was. It was a career to the point where um, I wasn't even thinking about the thrill of it anymore, you could say. Toward the end of my career, they needed somebody to go take a jet up and uh, just test something out with it or whatever. I think it was the cabin pressurization system. And uh, it was just my last couple months flying. And I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And I took this jet up and they didn't, I didn't need to do any tactics. They just asked me to go take it and see if the cabin pressurization worked. And so I took a jet, didn't have any external fuel tanks on it. It was a clean jet, that's what we call it. So it didn't have any extra weight. I put that thing in an afterburner and just went vertical after takeoff, went up, you know, 30, 40,000 feet and just kind of enjoyed myself. I was doing loops and rolls and I pushed it up to, I think, Mach 1.3 or something and put an afterburner into a dive and that was a really fun experience. I enjoyed that. That's what I did at the end, you know. But overall, yeah, it's just it became repetitive for sure <laughs> on the day to day. Yeah, and I mean, as you say, in a way, it has to become repetitive because that way it becomes intuition and that makes you a better pilot. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's funny. Because it's like a misaligned incentives where it's like, well, 
to become a really amazing pilot has to become second nature, but by becoming second nature, it, it becomes boring. That's right. Or at least not like a crazy excitement. I wouldn't necessarily say boring, but certainly doesn't have the same thrill factor, you could say. It was more, I think you could say the excitement was replaced rather than with boredom, was with stress. That's kind of what replaced it with and, you know, needing to perform that kind of thing. So it was, it is a little nuts to think about for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'm wondering, like, in general, when you think about the whole pilot experience, did it change because you experienced really extreme conditions? And I guess that's a job where you're closer to death than in a lot of jobs, like at least my job, because I don't think my computer is going to kill me anytime soon. <laughs> it does happen sometimes. Like my computer gets really mad sometimes and like I'm like, oh, well, what's going on? Um, but it's okay. It's not that dangerous. <laughs> so I'm wondering, actually, does that... Had, did that did that change the way you're living your life right now? Did that whole experience leave you with something that okay, now I'm living my life that way right now because of the experience I had before? Yeah, certainly in a few ways. I mean, so first off, in terms of what you're talking about, like the danger stuff, and absolutely, uh, it kind of spilled over in that like a lot of things don't seem very difficult to me now. I guess you could say, and it's just because. It's like, I feel like if I'm at zero knots in 1G, like I talked about sitting on my couch, like I can think about something and problem solve it without really any problem. You know, whereas uh, obviously if you're having to try to think about something in a jet, it's, it's uh, you know, time's against you and you don't really, you can't necessarily take all the time in the world. And it allowed me to think about contingencies a lot when I used to do that. So I think it spilled over into my personal and business life and that a lot of things seem doable to me, I guess you could say now. And, and you know, having flown these jets or whatever, it certainly seemed like a almost impossible feat, you know, looking at it when I was a kid to, you know, becoming one. And certainly a lot of people that I met when I was a kid told me it was impossible. And I mean, with good reason, I guess it kind of, if you think about it, I think one in a few thousand people that try to become a fighter pilot, maybe actually succeed or whatever. And then people are failing at all over the place. So it certainly gave me the confidence um, to think that things are easier to achieve you could say now you also talked about like the idea of uh it being like dangerous yeah that's true so maybe i look at a lot of other things as not so dangerous i think i would agree with that as well so because that was quite a dangerous job either in the aspect of if you were to be in a war i guess you could say if people try to shoot down down to the fact that you're flying in a you know a supersonic fighter jet sometimes at 200 feet over the ground where you're you know a tenth of a second away from hitting the ground if you don't look out properly or whatever it made a lot of other things not seem so dangerous in my life as well. So if that makes sense, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. No, that's definitely interesting. I can see like what can give you confidence, but also it can give you perspective and maybe help you, you know, enjoy easier aspects of life where, well, I'm not going to die with that stuff. So it's like, it's also peaceful, you know, <laughs> it's like, helps you to be, to be more peaceful, like creating a company, is well less of a deadly endeavor and that can be a good change of pace also yeah the stakes don't seem quite so high yeah i remember when i quit the air force it was like a month after i was walking around in my hometown of victoria and uh i remember i like walked in front of this hotel it was the fairmont hotel which is a nice one in canada i think they have them in a lot of places in the world but and they had this like big rose garden in front and i was smelling the roses i remember i went to smell the the flowers and then I thought, oh, this is interesting. Like I've retired from the Air Force and literally smelling the roses, you know, like just enjoying kind of being chill and different kind of life pace or whatever, you know. There were other things that I guess you could say in the military, more so than being a fighter pilot, but being in the military, I was told where to live and that I didn't necessarily yeah. like that. And so something I take took away from that now that I can live where I want is I'm making sure that I live really where I want. So that's why I'm traveling around the world and kind of practicing that kind of freedom, you know, like we were talking about earlier. I think that certainly gave me a desire to want to want to do that because I didn't like being told to live in Cold Lake, Alberta, or Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, population 3000, which is all military and oil workers or something like that. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, I completely understand. And I mean, me, it's kind of the same in a way. Like I had to live somewhere for a long time in my life. And now not having to do that, it's like you embrace that freedom for sure. Yeah, right. It's a great feeling. You choose to do it. It's much more of a choice. Yeah. Yeah. And so before asking you the traditional last two questions, actually have another one, which is because you said it's extremely, it's an extremely selective process to become a, a fighter pilot. So 
Actually, I'm wondering, is, like, is that more of a technical difficulty or physical difficulty? Is it like really, you know, like trying to become a Navy SEAL where it's like mainly physical stuff and like, and I mean, also morally, I, I guess, but, but then fighter pilot, how, where does the difficulty come from? You know, like, is it more technical actually, which is like the flying techniques and that's what discriminates among people. And so more generally, then is there a piece of advice that you would give someone who wants to become a fighter pilot today? And maybe a piece of advice that you wish you had had when you were that young and, and trying to make it as a pilot. Yeah, certainly. I mean, because I remember I was I was really going for a long time and I didn't really know any people. I, and yeah, it is certainly, it's in the head. I mean, this, this, the whole challenge of being a fighter pilot's in your head. That's like, a, not by, I don't mean like in your head as if, as if it doesn't exist. I mean, in your head as in, that's where the challenge is. It's in your brain and knowing a ridiculous amount of information that you're required to study in a closed vault room with like, I don't know how many locks to get into and the amount of time you have to put into learning these secret tactics or whatever. And so all these things you need to learn, ridiculous amounts of information about the aircraft, the systems, your weapons, the enemy's weapons, the enemy's tactics, your tactics, all these things. And then being able to put them into action in the air when you're against time, split second decision making that needs to be based on instincts, which is based before that on, on the information you know. So that's why it's so difficult. And it is very difficult. I mean, it wasn't easy when I did it. So I don't know, like, yeah, what would I have liked to, as advice? I mean, <laughs> maybe a little bit of a reality check, I guess. When I like I'm happy I did it, certainly. But it would have been nice to know that um or somebody just to be like, hey, just so you know <laughs> what you're getting into here, you're going to live in uh, some of the most undesirable places in the, you know, in the country for time on end and, and sit in windows with no rooms for hours on end until midnight on computer systems that you need to take the, you know, do all kinds of security checks and stuff to get on so you can study or whatever and learn all these things and know all these things by heart so that you can maybe fly a couple hours a week. It would have been nice to just know that ahead of time. I probably still would have done it, but uh, it certainly was a, a little bit of a wake-up call once I ended up doing it. I was like, wait, I spent two decades of my life to maybe do something cool, something that has a lot of, I guess you could say, drawbacks to it in terms of lifestyle. You know what I mean? So the advice would be somebody giving me a little bit of a wake-up call on the lifestyle aspect of that job because the lifestyle aspect of that job, it's not just a job, it's a life. It's a way of life, you know? At the age of 30, I realized that I wanted a different lifestyle, you could say. And, and probably all my life, I've never really wanted a lifestyle that a fighter pilot had. And I think I'm happy with how I did that. But certainly, um, lifestyle wasn't necessarily for me. And that's in part why I got out. So it would have been a nice piece of advice, if that makes sense. So I could have really kind of considered that, I guess, beforehand. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of work that I put towards something, when then I did it for only three years. And I was like, okay, I want to do something else, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I understand. And it does make a lot of sense. I wish I had that same advice. I think when I started, just me, my first job was in, you know, um, government. And, and yeah, it was like the main problem for me here was the lifestyle too. So yeah, like if someone had given me that advice, I would probably not have taken that role. <laughs> you know, so it all turned out well in the end, but uh, it's, you know, it's for sure something that's uh, were valuable. And yeah. So I'm just thinking about something before closing up the show. Uh, actually, you know, you were talking a lot about you go through contingencies when you're sitting on your couch at zero, uh, 1G and, and zero knots. And uh, that's actually super interesting because I'm, so I'm really into social sciences and uh, I mean, behavioral sciences. And there is something called basically like that benefits of uh, visualizations. And because like for a while, we thought a lot that, yeah, you have to visualize the positive stuff and like the positive scenarios only because that way it will create the positive outcome. And actually more and more the science on that is, well, no, you should visualize all the different scenarios and like what you would do if the scenario is a good one and how you would get there. But also if stuff, if things go wrong, so the negative scenarios, because then you can prepare your mind and your brain at what it will do if if things go wrong and and that's interesting because for instance one of the the athletes that help science understand more of that is i think it's michael phelps where he was one of the first one to explain that actually he was visualizing his 
competitions, but also the negative parts of the competition. You know, like what happens if I can't, if I lose time at the beginning when I dive? What happens if my turn is wrong? What do I do in those cases and so on? And some experiments were done based on that afterwards. And it seems to be actually extremely valuable to not only visualize the positive outcomes, but also the negative ones to prepare your brain uh, on what to do and, and how. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool that you've heard about that before. Yeah, it's... um. I'll use a positive, like what's meant to go for plan. That's like the baseline plan. And then everything with the contingency is, is you're trying to reachieve that baseline plan as easy as possible or whatever. So, and in this type of stuff that we're doing, it wasn't, if it goes wrong, it's when it goes wrong. I mean, nothing ever really went according to plan. So it's like, yeah, you know, if you need to hit two targets, right, let's say, or three or four targets or something, and you each have whatever amount of bombs. And let's say one jet gets shot down, even in training, it's shot down, like, in quotes or whatever. Well, you need to have a contingency plan for who's then dropping on what based on the priority of the targets. Maybe we can't hit them all now. And then also, what is the other jet? What are the other jets doing? If one gets shot down or let's say like uh, you're doing laser guided bombs and then a cloud gets in the way. Okay, well, if your cloud gets in the way, because that's very likely, even on a clear day, you could have a little cloud right in the way. That's happened to me. And then all of a sudden you need to reattack from another angle. While you're reattacking from another angle, you better believe the enemy's scrambling their jets to take off and now they're going to have an easier time intercepting you. So all these types of things are certainly um, important to think about because if you're like, oh, I never thought about that when you're flying a thousand kilometers an hour and still trying to do some other shit while another jet uh, tries to intercept you, you're screwed, you know? So Yeah, yeah. Damn, fascinating. Awesome. <laughs> Jason, it's starting to get late for you, so I want to be mindful of your time. So let's close up the show with the last two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. First one is, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Yeah, I thought, uh, you know, I think, there's, I don't know if it's considered, oh, well, I guess death is considered a problem. So it is for me, at least. So my biggest, one of my biggest fears is getting old and dying one day. So I understand that probably if I say this, or you know, if you think about the practical aspects of everyone living forever, it wouldn't work. I get that, but I would like to live forever. And so, <laughs> if I could put <laughs> unlimited time and resources into something, I would want to figure out how you could live forever because there's so many things to do in this world and so many things to be able to see. I mean, I realize this when I've been traveling. So many different aspects of business or different interesting fun activities you could do it. It just feels like we don't have enough time, you know, and, and if we could just like not age and not die of maybe, you know, getting old or something, maybe I guess you die from, you know, eventually maybe getting something like getting a car accident or whatever, statistically, huh? <laughs> if you live long enough. But I think that would be a, that would interest me, I guess you could say. Knowing that I'm sure there's people with that would criticize that based on the overall idea for the world, maybe wouldn't be the good thing for 6 billion people to stay alive forever and continue to reproduce. But I like the idea of it. Yeah, yeah, no, man, that would be, I mean, that would make for great science fiction novels, you know, like, yeah, because <laughs> it's like, I mean, living forever, but imagine you live forever and like you still age. Honestly, I wouldn't want that, you know, like if you <laughs> like have the body composition of a 100 year old and you live for millennia, oh my God. You know, oh, so it's like, yeah. oh God, that'd be horrible. Yeah, you have to caveat a lot. But you could have science fiction novels where it's like, well, you have eternal youth, you know, but you cannot reproduce, for instance. <laughs> you know, things like that. It could make some fun scenarios. Yeah, right. <laughs> then I was gonna poke I was gonna poke at your answer because it was like, wait, if you have unlimited time and resources to think about something, doesn't that already mean that you've solved eternal life? Because unlimited time means you already live forever. So, you know, <laughs> like, you've already... So you don't... Because <laughs> you have unlimited time. You've already solved that problem. Yeah. Yeah, you already have unlimited time, so you're already eternal. True. All I need to do is take you up on the offer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but that, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I guess your answer then is like being young forever. Uh, or at least being able to travel forever. Yeah, call it, I mean, call it 30 years old or something forever, kind of in your body or something. That'd be nice. Yeah. Maybe it's one of those be careful what you wish for things. Maybe. Yeah, for sure. Maybe after like a thousand years, you're like, this sucks, you know, but. um. Yeah, because you would have seen everything. Yeah. <laughs> but my mortal self at this point in time thinks it would be a, a beautiful thing. No, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, damn. That gives me ideas for some science fiction. <laughs> So second question, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? That's an interesting one, too, because it's kind of cross-answer, uh, I'd say. 
because of two reasons. So it would be Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. And the reason would be, I mean, I'm not actually sure on his scientific background, but he certainly knows how to hire people who are scientific. And I'm sure he understands a good portion of what he's doing because of the marvels of science that he's essentially is happening under his watch. I mean, in terms of SpaceX and you know, these satellites he's doing and rockets and whatever. I think it's very interesting the the type of aerospace engineering that's going on in this guy's company. I mean, and the engineering with Tesla, these type, this guy's a pretty revolutionary dude. And he's certainly going to go down um, in history as a figure. He's already a figure, but in the future, he'll even be more so of one, in my opinion. And so he's got some pretty cool scientific stuff going on in his companies that I think are things that a lot of people didn't really realize could be possible. Maybe you could say, and on top of that, he's made lots of money doing it to be, I think he's the richest man in the world or somewhat, you know, he's got a lot of money, obviously. And he also is a very good businessman, obviously, because uh, of his businesses are succeeding and in science. I mean, and what's interesting, what's different about this, I think, is usually uh, in this type of scenario, usually science and exploration and science costs money. Like you look at the NASA program and and stuff like that or whatever with the United States or whatever. And that all cost of money to go to the moon and stuff like that. But this guy's making money off it. And I think that's pretty impressive. So I'd like to chat with him about it. Yeah. Sounds like an interesting dinner. Well, Elon is actually one of the fans of the show. So he'll probably reach out after this episode airs. <laughs> Make sure to invite me. Can't wait. Thanks a lot, Jason. I mean, I could still talk a lot like if this is a fascinating topic I'm, I'm really happy to have like done this episode it's a bit of fresh air still a bit of stats and a lot of nerdy things but that's cool to have some fresh new topics in the podcast from time to time i hope listeners have enjoyed it reach out if you liked it if you didn't like it also that's always interesting and as usual i put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper Thank you again, Jason, for taking the time and being on this show. Yeah, thanks, buddy. I had fun. Thanks for a good conversation. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.